This presentation is from UX Australia 2018, held in Melbourne. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au. Good, it did not fall asleep. I was kind of worried about that for a second. So, thank you, Steve. Um, this, of course, is a very lovely event. So, a little bit of housekeeping. I have the immense uh, pleasure and the privilege to be up here for you um, on the birthday of my best friend, my wife and my favorite person, Samantha Soma. Now, we are not going to sing. We're not going to subject ourselves to that collective embarrassment. But what I do want to do is, on three, just simply shout, happy birthday, Samantha. Is that cool? Yeah. One, two, three. Happy birthday, Samantha. That was, wow, on cadence, that was pretty. <laughs> Wait a minute, there's 800 people in this room. The odds are there's somebody else in this room with their birthday. Raise your hand if it's also your birthday today. There we go. So, let's try this again on three. We're going to say happy birthday to everybody who raised their hand. All right. One, two, three. Thank you. I'm done. Have a good night. All right. So, yesterday afternoon, Steve Portugal was up here. He gave a great talk about you know, thinking about addressing problems and solving problems. But in the Q&A section, somebody asked him, what is the future of UX? And Steve's answer was basically, well, forget the, forget the future, blockchain, blah, blah, AI, blah, blah, robots, blah, blah. In the back of my head, I'm thinking, thanks a lot, Steve. <laughs> oh. I love him like a second cousin. Okay. Um, <laughs> I'm not even sure what that means. So here's the deal. I've been doing some reflecting this year on careers. I've had the kind of luxury of how to a few months off, take some time, think about you know, what I've done and what I want to do next. And part of that is thinking back to 25-year-old me fumbling my way into a design career, and which then in turn made me think about Today's 25-year-olds. Uh, Can I get a, I'm curious about an age distribution in the room, and we're all gonna say, if you are 30 or under, just please clap. That's not bad. Thank you for clapping for us, older folks who have been around the block a few times. Um, but this talk is directed mostly at you, and think about what kind of what does the future hold for your design careers? I almost wish I had you know, the, the couch and I thought ahead of the, the couch and the upfront for your designers, but just kind of feed over the mind, pre pretend they're there. So what we're gonna kind of think about is how could the coming um, evolutions in technology in the future affect design careers? Where could they go? How's the future going to affect us? Can we look a little bit at the past to learn some lessons to as we go forward to maybe apply those same lessons? This is partly, it's a lot of speculation. It's almost, you could almost call it guesswork. Looking 20 years into the future, frankly, is kind of a crapshoot. But there are some things we can follow, there's some trends we can look at to kind of take a reasonable guess at what might be coming up. So let's talk about careers. 
This is Laurie Anderson, who at roughly age 20 and at roughly age 70, but with that singular focus of playing some form of violin when she was young and when she was older. She has nothing to do with the rest of the talk, I just kind of like this image. So here is our lifespan. Boiled down to run one little simple line, we're born and then we live off into infinity. At some point, we start our careers when we're about 20 years old. And of course, it's like an average. Some start earlier, some start later. Um, but roughly at age 20 is when our careers start to kick off. Maybe we're in school, maybe we're already working, but we're kind of trying to figure out what to do with this life thing and how to go forward. And then our careers kind of go till we're roughly 70. Again, average, ballparking. But it's a nice, even number that makes it easy for me to put up on the slide. This creates a career of about 50 years. And I did not promise that there would be no math, so you're gonna have to just kind of just deal with it. But it creates a nice, roughly 50-year span of a career. And that halfway point is when you're about 45, 25 years on either side. This is kind of like the midpoint, I guess almost technically, um, of your career. So let's say you're 45 years old in this room right now, and it's 2018. This is where we are currently today. And this is what your career kind of looks like. You've started roughly, and say 90, you're gonna go until maybe the 2040s, which already feels kind of weird. But this is kind of the lifespan of somebody who's 45. If you're 55, things naturally shift a little bit, uh, 10 years. Again, there's math. But if you're 25, your career looks kind of like this. And this is what I find completely fascinating as somebody with a gray beard, is the years in which you're going to be probably a design leader in the future. Let's call that 20, 25 years away or whatever it is. Let's say like in the year 2028, 2038. And what I find fascinating about this simple math problem is that even though those years 2038 sounds like complete science fiction and we can just hardly guess at all what the world's going to look like. I mean, we're still gonna have two legs and probably still eat food, but the world's gonna be a bit different 20 years from now. And yet, that's only half of your career away. And I find that to be humbling, puzzling, fascinating, and worth thinking about and standing up here and telling you about it. So, the future is coming. This is a Tony James with one of the very first mobile cell phones in, in 86, just carrying a brick around. But let's look at um, how future technologies can affect what we do. And there's almost kind of a, a truth in that Brand new technologies, they tend to create new design questions. And then those new design questions then often lead to new design disciplines. And we'll look at a few examples of this and then apply that to technology that's coming, coming in the near future. So for example, in let's say 1995, six, seven or whatnot, the first complex websites were introduced to the world. This was the kind of technology that nobody had ever seen before, it was a brand new thing it burst out into the world, which created all kinds of new questions, problems, processes, and jobs. But that complexity created a design question of how do people understand what this thing is? How do you use this? Um, I mean, even stuff like the purple underline is a hyperlink. I mean, just garbage like that, but people had to learn how to adapt to this new technology. So that design question kind of led towards a discipline of information architecture, how to think about that design question. So similarly, when the first touchscreen mobile phones showed up, when, the, when they first had something 
this small, a screen this small you could touch, you can play with it. I kind of created the question, well, how do people interact with that? We couldn't represent our normal websites and applications in that same format because it was a completely different interaction. So we had to kind of rethink that. How do people interact on this tiny little screen with their finger instead of a mouse? Well, of course, that design question led towards the discipline of mobile design, thinking another way to think about design. Then, fast forward a few years, people have a laptop, people have a phone, people have a tablet, there's these different sizes, and that kind of created the expectation of, I want to see this similar kind of content, not exactly the same, but clearly as part of a family on these, all these three experiences, which led to the question of, well, how do we deliver the same content without, re without creating three brand new channels uh, of delivery, which could be a pain in the ass, of course. This led towards responsive design. New technologies create new questions, and they create new approaches and new, new, new disciplines, and oftentimes, again, new jobs. So let's look forward a little bit and see where this may go and the stuff coming up. So one big thing on everybody's mind right now is AI and automation. And as you can see, there will still be a design job in the future for people to put little lines and dots and overlays <laughs> on top of things to indicate that there's something else kind of going on. That might be a, a permanent job forever. But AI is going to be in, and it's going to affect finance, it's going to affect education, insurance, trucking, almost every industry is going to be affected by this. And you can almost see this huge kind of gold rush happening right now with all these different companies trying to get a piece of the pie, trying to figure out what can we do to apply machine learning to this, AI to that, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, trying to cash in on what's clearly going to be a big game changer over the next few years. And in fact, McKinsey uh, published a report, a study just a few months ago about this. They wanted to look ahead towards the year 2030 and try to figure out how is AI and automation going to change the workforce. And what they concluded was looking at all the different types of jobs and all the different types of industries that could be affected, they were saying that by the year 2030, 12 years away, when the 25-year-olds are only 37, 14% of the jobs globally are going to shift in one form or another. One out of seven, basically, jobs globally. And of course, the jobs are gonna be affected a lot are the ones that, frankly, can be automated a bit more, whether that's kind of mentally automated or physically automated, kind of like machine learning you know, versus robotics. This is gonna be kind of interesting the next 10 years. We're kind of, we'll have to see what this happens. But the interesting part, though, is the kind of stuff that we're doing is gonna be completely, it's harder to automate, I'll just put it that way. Um, so just, just keep learning. And we'll actually, we'll, we'll talk about later about the ways you can kind of keep learning and be ahead of the curve. So using the same logic that we saw a few minutes ago, when you offload expertise to algorithms, it kind of creates the question of, well, how do we trust those algorithms? How do we trust the recommendations, the preferences, the answers, whatever it is that is being produced by machine learning, how do we trust that? Well, that could create a new discipline or approach called trust design. So now we're kind of backing off from, let's say, mobile or responsive. Like, we actually now need to design how that trust is understood and communicated to the people using whatever it is that's being built. A related thing is, okay, so sure, now that we've kind of understood what's happening in the background of the algorithms, wait a minute, 
those algorithms are being trained by data sets, and there's probably some, how do we get the inherent bias out of those data sets? How do we fully, fully trust what is being created? Well, again, that might actually put us in a position where we can actually be there at the beginning of the design of the algorithms, which we probably should be. So can we understand the problem that's being solved, the data that's being used to generate the algorithm, and then how that's communicated? Design should be part of the conversation. Related to this is robotics. Uh, this is a Tesla factory, very red, shiny, and silver. Um, and robotics is gonna be a related area for AI and automation, much more like, let's call it physical automation versus uh, you know, digital automation. That makes no sense. And there's gonna be a huge um, also push in people collaborating with robots. So it's not just robots on the factory floor line you know, making a car, but there's gonna be kind of this companion type of work where people are interacting with some kind of physical robot, doing some type of task, running it, operating it, setting the commands, and so on. So this commingling of people and robots kind of creates a question of how do people and robots collaborate? Is there a shared language? How do our instructions happen? How does feedback happen? How do, those, how do the two communicate with each other, which is part of collaboration? So this might then lead towards a new type of design, uh, design discipline called collaboration design. Although actually cobot design is kind of a, cobot is becoming a, a word I'm seeing out there for collaborative robot. Pretty clever, you see what they did there? <laughs> Another one is mixed reality. Virtual reality, augmented reality, mixed reality. Let's just kind of mash up in, into one big bucket. This is a course where you can now overlay a digital experience on top of reality, in the case of augmented, or completely replace your entire field of vision with, with virtual reality. Um, Magic Leap has been under the wraps for a few years now, and they just in the last few weeks gave us a first glimpse of what they've been working on. And it's kind of fascinating because they have this thing called Creator where you are in your room creating some kind of thing, stuff happening, little knights tackling dragons or whatever. Um, Again, it's not the kind of thing that's replacing reality, but it's a pretty interesting first step into what can be created uh, with this technology. So this ability to basically manufacture reality, once it gets far more um, realistic, to the point where it's kind of hard to tell the difference between real real and manufactured real. That's where star stuff starts getting a little interesting and more weird. But how do people discern what is actually real. This may create a discipline called perception design. How do you perceive what is physical and what is digital? And maybe even 10 years after that, we might not even care anymore. But there's gonna be an awkward period in between where people kinda of wanna know, you know, which is which. Another thing related to um, augmented reality, why does it not, that did not progress. Because life is awesome. If this were to play, that's, that's really cool, there we go. Um, now they're overlaying uh, instructions on top of manufacturing repair. I need to repair this engine, but I don't know how to do it because I haven't done it before. Train me on how to do this. So by overlaying the augmented reality on the physical thing itself, you can guide somebody through this process. And I find this pretty fascinating, kind of given the time I was at, at GE, this is a really interesting use of augmented reality. 
So this ability to overlay guidance and instructions on top of physical stuff could kind of lead to the, the question of, so how do we actually scale that? How do you scale the whole process of, I've got these very specific engine models that need to be uh, repaired in probably several different ways. How do I scale that? Well, this could lead towards an interesting, interesting resurgence of instructional design because it's kind of a natural follow-through of that, but again, in a very different new and kind of way. Then things could go strictly to hell. <laughs> this is um, a dystopian experiment done by uh, Kiichi Matsuda a couple years ago called hyperreality. And what he did was, what is the worst thing possible you could do with augmented reality? And it's a complete nightmare to look at. We are completely overwhelmed. But 20 years from now, is this normal? It's hard to say. So the question here becomes, there's a temp it would be a temptation to flood the environment with this kind of thing. Like in that, in that video, you could tell that if this, was, if this were reality, there wouldn't be just one company producing all of this. It would be dozens of companies doing their own individual little thing in their own individual spaces. There'd be a temptation to flood the environment. So how do we moderate the use of this in the real world? Well, this could lead towards a branch of ethics design. Ethics will kind of keep coming up over and over. Um, probably not a, not a surprise there. Let's switch to material science. Um, actually, a few weeks ago, John Colco, who might be somewhere in the room, uh, wrote about this, how material science is probably going to be um, a huge effect on the world of design in the coming decades. Because if you think about it, it creates, no pun intended, well, a new material for us to work with. So for example, if physical things can be programmed in different ways, that becomes a new thing we have to design. So for example, if physical materials can have glow or lighting be automated, show and hide, that becomes a thing. And if you add on contour, if the physical shape of something can be uh, programmed, be automated, be disposable, that's something that has to be designed. If this material is also conductive, what becomes interesting is all you really need is changing the lighting, changing the contour of something physical, and some conductivity, some capacitance, that's all you really need for disposable physical UIs. This podium up here could have you know, three buttons that pop up or disappear based on whatever is in that situation. These three elements, I think, is all you would really need. But they can also, there's a sense of, you can throw in movements, maybe a little bit of shimmy involved, <laughs> to have things you know, kind of, I'll just leave it here for half an hour. And <laughs> this, by the way, is the best thing ever in the internet, right? But motion, physical objects could have motion. A button could move across. I don't know if that's a good idea or not, but it's possible. So the whole ability to have material, um, basically have it come alive, physical things you know, come alive, kind of creates the question of, well, then how does material behave or communicate? Which is, could lean towards a, dis a discipline called kinetic design. And I don't even have time to cover. We could, we could do this all night long and talk about drones, not automated driving, genetic engineering, nanotechnology, language translation, cryptocurrencies, blockchain, that's for Steve Portugal. 
quantum computing, space tourism, etc. All these things are going to have an effect on our society in one way or another, and those effects usually end up being some kind of new design challenge. But what I want us to do is notice a pattern of what's happening here, because patterns are fun. New technologies, when they appear, they, they often will change how we conceive of the world around us. For some really simple examples, when trains showed up, that one's for Alan, uh, not on purpose, but now it is. Um, when trains showed up in the 19th century, they kind of changed how our perception of the space that we lived in. Beforehand, we kind of lived within, you know, we never really moved beyond, let's say, a day's horse ride away. But when trains showed up, it expanded our world. Before trains, the world was small. Afterwards, afterwards the world was a bit bigger. Radio in the 1920s, when this showed up, people could hear things live for the first time. People kind of gathered as groups to hear a baseball game, a speech, a dance, an opera. Well, hearing a dance, that makes no sense. Hearing an opera. Although if you can hear, it, hear a dance, more power to you. But before radio, world, the world was kind of delayed. To get news, it was always a day later, uh, a day earlier, and so on. I mean, there's the telegraph. But radio was much more of a mass, uh, mass experience. But after radio, the world was live. The internet. Before the internet, the world kind of required, knowledge required effort and research to acquire. Afterwards, it's like, what was that episode of Gilligan's Island? Oh, yeah, let me just check my phone. Um, knowledge is an instant thing. It kind of changed again how we perceive of the world. So some examples of this. So when AI and automation change how we think and work, we may begin to change our mindset a little bit that work can be much more malleable. It can kind of come and go, whether I do it or whether this you know, machine, the software does it. When CRISPR shows up and DA can be edited to change a person's, the composition of their DNA, their, their genetic profile, change a person's body, that could start creating the mindset that bodies are malleable, bodies are editable. That's weird shit. But it's plausible that that mindset could change. When language translation becomes uh, much more, let's say, effective than it is now, and it's getting there. We're making a lot of strides that have been made the last few years. But when language is no longer a barrier between people in different cultures, well, then, it, are cultures then more malleable? When cryptocurrencies can start exchanging value across borders without all of the hoops that happen in, in the current system, well, then, do economies become more malleable? When digital reality can no longer be dis, uh, distinguished from physical reality because rendering simulation is so damn good that you can't, you're not quite sure which is which, then, then we might think, well, reality is now malleable. This starts getting weird. We may begin to think that actually everything is malleable. It might be kind of the mindset that we're kind of coming into in the coming decades. And this may seem a bit far-fetched, and I get that. But if you think about it, this behavior didn't exist 10 years ago. People walking around, 
doing this, in company, being on the phone. That's a new behavior that showed up because of a new technology. So it's plausible to think that other new technologies are gonna have similar effects on the behavior of us as people. Now, given all this potential change, let's bring it back to you. If you're 25 years old in this room, and you could be basically design leader, let's say 15, 20 years, when all of this stuff is kind of like midstream, your timing could be really, really interesting. Because I'm not sure if you've been paying attention to the news lately, but there's kind of there's two big options ahead of us right now from a culture standpoint. There's the good option and the bad option. We're kind of on a knife's edge in, in terms of, of humanity and things that we're doing. Uh, the climate's changing. This is the uplifting part of the talk, by the way. Um, <laughs> climate's changing. People are getting desperate. I'm not gonna go into that any further. Um, yeah, USA. Um, and things are gonna get weird as new technologies are introduced into society. Drone delivery. Um, I love this conversation on the, on the bottom right. Uh, this reporter was talking to a robot. Watch, watch him right here. Oh, this is so weird. But in that world, you may, going back to the McKinsey report, your skills will very likely be in demand. Because you've been spending your career thinking about people, their needs, how to create things for them, how to be uh, nimble and flexible and agile with a small A and no trademark symbol after it. Um, your skills, you, you might be in really interesting timing because what we do is we make things for people and that's not going to go away. But the whole idea of making and the whole idea of things, that may change. So let's say it's 2038. People are stressed out because the world is probably a bit weird, jobs have been shifting, and so on. The world is changing rapidly. And in fact, people may actually be adapting to that rapid change. It might be just becoming a part of daily life that every year could feel a bit different from the one prior. But along the way, you've been working on the skills to help them because that's what you're doing in this world of design slash user experience, slash whatever we're gonna call it you know, in three years. And at this point, you're still only 45 years old. And I think that is kind of awesome because you're still rolling, you're still in the thick of it. So let's take a look at some hypothetical challenges coming up in the next few years. And to do that, we can guess at jobs, but it's almost a little bit more effective to kind of create a framework around it because designer. So let's think about potential industries, and this is not exhaustive, but it's as examples. So there are industries that we know, education, transit, politics, finance, and food. Those aren't gonna go away anytime soon as industries. Then we can also think about the different types of challenges, kind of based on what we saw earlier. There's collaborating, there's trusting, shopping probably won't go away, communicating, and analyzing different types of challenges that people have, different types of problems that we can then um, work on. And the, the technology, the materials could change. Maybe there's kinetic services we're throwing at it, there's machine learning, some mixed reality, blockchain, blah, blah. 
robots. So let's play a little bit of a slot machine and see what happens. If you take any of these things in combinations, it almost forces you to think about what a solution or what a problem, not a solution, but what's a kind of challenge that could happen if you think about the food industry, if you think about the problem of trust, and just for the heck of it, you throw in blockchain. Because blockchain. <laughs> so one thing, one thing that could happen is, suppose that farmers in the future um, could be able to identify the crop that apples were picked on, the date, the composition, um, what pesticides or not were used on them, what kind of nutrients, and that gets passed down through the data stream to the store, to the person who's actually buying it. So a design problem could be visualizing that life of that apple in, in the store. All right, slot machine again, what do we got? Uh, education, collaborating, and mixed reality. Maybe there's something in the future where we're actually we're designing spaces to help people explore how to develop new materials because material science has gotten to the point where it becomes much more of a layperson thing that, you, that can be done. Let's help people create a space to think about how to do that. One more slot machine. Politics, communicating, and machine learning. Ooh, what the hell's gonna happen here? Well, we could create some kind of AI-based negotiation system that is optimizing outcomes. Suppose people could actually, suppose we had a data model that, crap, I'm making this up, which is a horrible idea right now. Suppose we have a data model of how people, what their outcomes, their outcomes and their needs and their desires are, put that into the system, throw some machine learning at it, optimize it, and get an answer. You might not adhere to the answer, but it could get you to an, an answer that could be interesting. All right, so given all that, now what? It's kind of, it's 20 years away, it's a lot to take in, all I can do is stare at this pyramid and just think, what the hell am I gonna do now? And can you actually plan for 20 years away? Well, no. There's no way you can exactly know what 20 years away looks like, so how do you actually plan for that? But not exactly a no. Let me throw a metaphor at you. Let me kind of throw an idea at you to maybe help you get towards that 20-year point, at least in little chunks. Drink more water. Brush your teeth, floss, exercise, all those things. Be prepared for anything. I, lo I love the metaphor of the disaster preparedness kit. Um, and the disaster part may actually be kind of apt here. But basically, it's a kit that you have all of these things that you need. You might not need them. You might need, in certain situations, you might just need these tweezers, you might need this gauze, but you're kind of packed, ready to go for whatever situation may come up. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna sign you all some homework. <laughs> this, is, this is no small thing. I think a way to do this is to focus on and learn one new topic every single month. You don't have to go deep, you don't have to get a PhD in it, 
but take something that you don't, you know nothing about and just spend one month kind of exploring it because there's a lot of stuff out there in the world to learn about. There's all these different topics, there's fields, there's ways of thinking. Um, and all these things become interesting when you think about them in combinations. So rather as isolated fields, what does you know, farming plus fashion look like? What does cobalt mining plus Mars? That's a horrible example. Um, banking and trust systems, that's a bit more reality. If you tackle each one of these, one a month, interesting things happen. So be your own topic of the month club. I think it's a really interesting way of kind of moving forward on this. And here's a really simple way to look at it. There are 12 months in a year, right? Right. I'll give you two months off for good behavior. Take off August, I mean June. Take off June, take off December. There's 10 months in the year. And if every single month, if you just explored one thing, I'm gonna learn about ethics. I'm gonna learn about leadership theory. I'm gonna learn about systems thinking, elections, immigration, and so on. And again, this could be any order, any topic you want, it doesn't really matter. If you keep doing this every single year, in four years, you will know about 40 new things. In that same 20 years, you will learn about 200 new things. You will have built up your knowledge to when the weirdness happens in the future, you've kind of been exposed to a whole bunch of stuff over time that's gonna make you more valuable as a designer out in the world because you've had that kind of exposure. So in that month time, just absorb it. Read whatever you can, sign up for lists, watch videos, talk to experts, talk to people who know about this kind of stuff. Make something, at the end of it, just write about what you've learned in that month, store that away, and in the next month, move on to the next one. Basically, Get yourself prepared to when that science fiction becomes fact. And at that point in time, you'll be a 40-ish design leader. You'll have learned a lot. You'll have self-taught your self-taught yourself a lot. You actually have learned how to learn faster. And I think as the world gets stranger and things get a bit more rapid in the future, that itself is going to become a much more valuable skill. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. If you like taking a question or two. Sure. Because you've just like posed a whole bunch, so we'll take a turn. Who would like to ask Bill a quick question? Oh, over there. Or Rowan. And then, yeah. I guess if you're looking at, uh, oh, thank you, but uh, if you're looking at new areas of design, um, I guess, like, what are your building blocks to start understanding that area? I'm sorry, say it again, please. Uh, so if you were going to go and learn a new area, how would you build frameworks to kind of go out and learn those new areas? I'm actually having a hard time understanding the audio. Maybe it's my old ears. I'm not sure what it is. Oh. I actually could not understand the question. <laughs> that's when you're learning, Thank you, that's better. Yeah. Okay, so when you're learning a new area of design, are there any frameworks to, you can apply to help learn that? I'm glad it was the audio and not my ears. I just, that's, that's kind of reassuring. Um, when I started at GE, I was assigned to the aviation division. 
and I knew crap about jet engines. I knew that they should stay in the air, um, and that was about it. And so kind of the way I went about that is to not just focus on the immediate problem that was at hand in that particular project, but I tried to learn about the industry. Basically just like backing out a level and just absorbing all you can. Um, and so the framework, I want, what I want to say is just, just back out a level and just kind of keep backing out a level. I mean, you can't go forever because you drive yourself insane. Um, but try to like understand the industry. What makes that industry tick? How does it flow? What are the goods and the bads? How is it rewarded? Um, then that kind of give you the context for whatever it is the specific thing is that you need to focus on. I hope that helps. Um, this is maybe more of a plug than a question, but um, I'm, I'm David, I'm a UX designer from Sydney. Um, I, I'm a pharmacist, I recently transitioned into UX design last year. From, as a pharmacist? Um, yeah. Okay, um, that's so awesome. Just out of curiosity, I kind of uh, stumbled upon a uh, Microsoft meetup uh, about mixed reality, um, and they've asked me there last month, and I did a talk about uh, design thinking and how we could apply to kind of solve problems and use technology in uh, mixed reality and whatnot. Um, so next month, they're having uh, Unity come on and do a talk. Okay. Um, in, so if you guys are interested, look up uh, Mixed Reality Fundamentals uh, <laughs> on, on Meetup. Um, yeah, it's, it's a plug. Um, so was the question, can they come to this thing? Like, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah it's, it's, it's in Sydney, and you can, you can come. So, um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so basically, uh, Unity is the um, uh, 3D game engine platform that they use to design. Yeah. Um, so if you're interested, that's it. All right, do we have one question? Uh, <laughs> over there, and then we'll, uh, we'll move on. Hang on. Mine's kind of around being a pharmacist and then moving into UX design and also to you, Bill. Um, do you see a lot of design going into that, like um, medicines and things like that? Do you see that industry being affected by design in any way? I love the non-small questions that you all pose. <laughs> um, will design affect medicine? Um, is that basically right? Yeah. Well, sure. Um, I think especially, I mean, if you're talking about like the design of drugs themselves, I'm not sure. If you're talking about the service design of healthcare, 100% absolutely. Um, I think basically where there's people involved, then designing is completely, is a thing. Um, if you're talking about medicines that I think what's one thing that's interesting is, at some point when we are much more aware of our own personal DNA, and, and the composition, and the things that we react to, and the things that work well for us and don't, as each individual person, the medicines can be tailored to each individual person as appropriate. I think that becomes, um, I think service design will play a part there, because well, one, there's a lot of ethics involved. Um, there's how do you know 
if this medicine is appropriate for me in my particular situation. How is that communicated? How do people understand that? Um, there's almost guaranteed to be some kind of product or system that communicates that, automatic design challenge. Um, I don't think there's any industries that really should not be effect affected by design. Of course, I'm a designer, so I'm gonna say that. Um, but I think that's true. After? Okay. Thank you very much, Bill. Thank you. Thank you, everybody. Thank you for listening to this presentation from UX Australia 2018. For more presentations, please visit uxaustralia.com.au.